Church. It's great to be here with you. I trust that your conversations around the table have been rich and that you've gotten to know people a little better than maybe you knew them before. Um, several have asked me how long that I'm going to speak, and I have contemplated this and over the past week, you know, wonder how long I should speak. Well, we had two patients in our clinic on Thursday, and I had gotten to know them pretty well, and one of them is a pastor, and so I said, Pastor A, I got a question for you. I'm supposed to speak Sunday at my church. How long do you think I should speak? And he said, 15 to 20 minutes. He said, after that, you lose people. They'll start looking at their phone, and she, he said, you always want to leave them for more, wanting more. I said, okay. And a man across the room said, no, 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 that's not the right answer. He said, you speak till the spirit tells you to stop, and then you stop. So I'll just let y'all know today that, you know, you can take your pick, whether you want it to be 15 minutes or whether you want the spirit to move. And I had that conversation with them, and that was interesting. Um, in Hebrews 11, it's called the faith chapter. And in that chapter, I read it recently, it speaks of people and events in their life that grew their faith, things that... Um, things they went through, journeys they went on, and I'm not going to read that this morning, but I want you at some point, Hebrews 11, to spend some time reading. And some of the things that it says there, it says, by, a by faith, Abel gave a better sacrifice than his brother Cain. And it says, by faith, Enoch was taken up with God and he never died. And it said, by faith, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, not knowing where he was going. And by faith, Sarah conceived a child in her old age. All these things talk about the faith that was built through these families, through the circumstances and the situations of their life. And I started thinking, when I read that passage a couple of weeks ago, I started thinking, if I had to say who in my life had built had done things and been a part of my life that allowed my faith to be strengthened, who would those people be? And so today what I hope to do is to provide you with a snapshot of those people. Now this is not an all-exclusive list by any means or all-exclusive scrapbook, but I do want you to know some people and some circumstances and some lessons I've learned along the way. The first picture that David's going to put up for me are some of the first influencers of my life. Um, it's going to be my mom and my dad. Um, they were great Christian parents. They believed you should do what was right. They believed you should obey the first time. They believed you should go to church. When I was um, one week old, I've been told that I was born on a Sunday, and the next Sunday I was, I was in church. So the... Um, the, 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 the time they spent teaching us, I've always said that when it came to teachers, my, my mom taught me the lesson about God's wrath. And my dad taught me the lesson of God's mercy. That's just how it worked. You'll see there my two sisters. I'm the one in the middle. Um, my youngest sister is Jan, and my oldest sister is Gina. And that was our family, and that was when we looked our Sunday best and we, we went to church. It was in that church that I learned that I needed a Savior. I was very young. I was six years old. 
And I always loved children, and God used this, the, my love for children to draw me to himself. There was a single lady that always would come to church with her two kids, and her name was Miss Pat Pyle. Well, bless her heart, you know, God bless single parents, and God bless people that bring kids to church when they're by themselves. Kids are a wonderful blessing to the church. And so this lady here, she would come on Sunday morning, she would be dragging in, carrying, you know, her kids, and I always thought it was my responsibility, you know, I was every bit of six years old, she needed my help. She needed me to go and sit with her and make her job easier taking care of her children. Well, so she comes in, my mom's in the choir, and she looks at me, and I'm going, can I go sit with Miss Pyle? And my mom goes, no. And I said, can, can I go to the bathroom? She said, no, because I, she knew my heart, she knew what I was gonna do, but she said, no. I got up, and I went to the bathroom, and I came back out, and I sat by Miss Pyle. And I looked at my mama. Now, she's the one that taught me about God's wrath, and when I looked at her, I knew I was in trouble. Now, I will tell you that God used that event in my life to help me understand what was right and what was wrong. And for the first time, I realized what I did was wrong, and I asked Jesus to be my Savior. Now, my sisters say, and it might be partially true, that I got saved to keep from getting killed, and that might have that been, been more what it was like. But... Um, Anyway, so I was saved at a young age. Went through high school and uh, graduated. I went to a Christian college, and I met Steve. Um, for those of you, many of you uh, know him. Most of you probably don't. But Steve was my husband, and we got married in 1987. But we met in college. And, you know, just like you do, you get to know each other. And I found out that he was adopted and that he was from Hope, Arkansas, and that he... Um, you know, he, had, he was a musician. And as I learned more about him, actually, he um, had some people over after church, his mom did, and the pianist at the church was there, and she played um, I Dropped My Dolly in the Dirt and walked away. And Steve went to the piano and immediately played that. And uh, he was very young. He was about five. And so she um, said, y'all come here. So she started playing little things, and Steve would repeat them and play him back. So he played for his first wedding when he was eight years old. And so he was very talented. Now, when I was in college, I actually took piano lessons from him. This is a regret I have. And I often told him that if I had known that I was gonna marry him, I would have never shown him how little of musical ability that I had. But he loved me anyway. Over the years, through my teenage years, it seemed that I had come to a place in my life that I felt like that it was important to do right things. And it was important to do right things, but my motive was all mixed up. I wanted to do things because I wanted God to love me more. And what could I do to make God love me more? And I, I worked on some of those things that I could do to, to you know, I, you know, oh, well, I need to do this and I need to do that. And actually what happens is you develop a life of legalism. And during that time, Steve helped me work through the situation, and he said something that was profound, and it has affected my faith. He said, there is absolutely nothing that you can do to make God love you more. And there's absolutely nothing 
you can do to make God love you less. And that was profound and very liberating for somebody who, who was trying so hard to get it right. And yet we never can measure up. But it has been liberating in my walk to know that no matter, no matter what, it isn't based on anything I've done, but it's all based on what Christ has done. And that's been liberating for me. Our relationship progressed to uh, getting engaged and, of course, married. And he taught me another lesson when we got married, when we actually, he proposed to me. He said, I want you to repeat five words after me. Great day. He said, there is no way out. There's no way out. He said, when we go into this, whatever happens, if you always keep that motive and I always keep that motive, if there's no way out, we'll always be in. So through our marriage, I can remember times when I would be in the kitchen and I'd be mad at him and I might slam a kitchen drawer or a dishcloth drawer or sling it across the room. But I would think to myself, if there's no way out, I might as well not waste this day and we'd work it out. So that was a, a lesson that he taught me. He was a great man, a great husband, and he loved the Lord. He had a huge servant's heart. And we had two children, Clark and Catherine. Um, and they were the love of our lives, and he was a great daddy. Um, he would do just about anything they wanted him to do. Um, one time, Catherine went to school, and her fingernails were painted, and they said to her, oh, your fingernails look so pretty. Did your mama paint your fingernails? <laughs> she said, no, my daddy paints my fingernails. So after that, Steve was like, I'm not doing it anymore. You're going to have to start painting her fingernails. But we were just enjoying life. Our kids were involved in sports. They were um, active. We were active. We were involved in church. Steve was actually a worship pastor, using his musical abilities and his kind and compassionate heart for the Lord, and life was good. But then our world was rocked because Steve was diagnosed with a brain tumor. The initial prognosis was not good. Um, the doctor actually said, don't drive anymore, go home, enjoy your life, make the most of it, and we'll check you again in six months. We were devastated. I mean, our children were small, but God. And God um, provided in a way that uh, was unbelievable for us. The man said, there's nobody that'll touch your brain tumor. It's an oligodendroglioma. Did y'all hear that big word I just said? It's an oligodendroglioma. And he said, no surgeon will touch that tumor. It was bigger, uh, uh, bigger than a golf ball, and it was in the centralmost part of Steve's brain, affecting his left side. And the doctor said, but that's a good thing because you're right-handed, aren't you? And Steve said, no, I'm left-handed. And he just dropped his head. So we ended up um, in the hands of a man whose name was Dr. Gaza Yazergil. He is actually, he got too old to practice medicine in Turkey and he came to the United States. He was 77 years old when he did Steve's first brain tumor surgery and removed it. He told us, he said, if I were your son, if you were my son, I would ask you to please let me remove this tumor. At the bedside in intensive care, when normally nurses are taking care, Dr. Yazergill tended to Steve for about eight hours before he would leave him after surgery. 
incredible man, actually called the father of neurosurgery um, of, a, of the century. So he was an amazing man that God placed us in his hands. He was 85 when he removed Steve's second tumor. And so um, we have a tremendous amount of love and respect for this man. Um, during that time, this started us on a 14-year journey that God would teach our family to walk by faith. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God, who has called you into the fellowship of his Son, is faithful. He's faithful. Through the hills and the valleys and the ups and the downs and the twists and the turns, God was there and he proved his faithfulness to us over and over, and he still does today. Now, um, my kids, um, you know, they were pretty much our life, just like your kids are your life. And uh, I can remember just totally being totally distressed and open before God. And I said, you know, God, I'm an adult, and I can handle this. But my kids, they're little. And, you know, this, you know, Steve had had a seizure, so he couldn't drive. And, and it was just going to be life-changing for all of us. And, and I remember where I was, and I was standing at my kitchen sink and looking out my back kitchen window, and I was just bemoaning the fact to God that my kids were going to have to walk through this. And it was one of those times that I didn't hear God say it out loud, but I heard him just as clear. And he said to me, my grace comes in child-sized packages. And I've never forgotten that. That was a, a lesson in my faith. Because, parents, if you are going through a difficult time in your life right now, and you think about your children, as hard as it is for us to embrace, it is also God's plan for those children to go through those tough times with you as well. Because he will use that to mold them and to make them. Um, through nothing that Steve and I did, but through everything God has done, our kids, they're pretty amazing. They, um, they have a heart for hurting people. They, they care about people who have hard diagnosis. They care about, they, they feel heavy hearted for people who are going through rough times. And I venture to say, that that sensitivity that they have was placed in them because they walked through the valley with their dad and I. Um, another thing that my kids have taught me, um, yeah, I hope y'all can see that picture. That is a picture of Clark. You know, sometimes we get all worked up about what God's doing in the lives of our kids. And I don't know if you can see that or not, but that's Clark when he was two years old. And he is playing with his favorite toy that is a calculator. And he has old checks in his other hand. And you know, for those of you who, in your faith walk, you're thinking, what in the world is God going to do with this hyperactive kid? Or what in the world? How's God going to use them? I want you to know that they're hardwired. God has hardwired children to become what they're supposed to be. I had another picture of Catherine that I searched diligently for, and I was unable to find it, but she has all of her dolls lined up on the couch, and she has a storybook, and she's reading to those kids, pointing to the book. She was about four. She now teaches third grade at Cross County Schools. She was hardwired to be a school teacher. Clark was hardwired to be a CPA. 
That's just how God works. I'm thankful for the way that God works in the lives of our children. Okay, this little girl, I'm going to call her T. During a time when Steve's health was better and I was at work, this was one of my kiddos. And she was born very prematurely. Actually, she was born at 24 weeks, weighed a pound and four ounces. She was one of the smallest surviving children that I ever had the privilege to work with when I would read their medical history. I became very bonded to her. When she came to us at nine months old, I was working at a preschool for children um, that learn differently. And I was, I was there and she came to us at nine months old and she was in an intact family. But due to some family issues and things that just were big struggles, she ended up in foster care. She was in a stable foster home, continued to come to our school, and when she was about three to four years old, the uh, house that she was living in in foster care, the um, house caught on fire and burned. There were six other, no, five other children besides T in that household, and so DHS had to disperse the children. Well, she went to a new foster home, and it was pretty traumatic. You know, you think of a little child, you look at your kids that are three years old and think if all of a sudden they're staying with a total stranger. It's pretty traumatic for those kids. And one day she came into therapy, and she said, Well, I don't know where I'm going to stay tonight. I said, Well, you're going to stay with your new foster mom. She said, Nope, I'm not staying there. She said, I wet the bed last night. And she said, she put me on the bus this morning with my suitcase and said I couldn't come back. And my heart hurt. So I went to the office and I said, wait a minute, you know, what's going on? And they confirmed everything that she told me was true. So I called her caseworker and I said, you know, Tyriana says she doesn't have anywhere to go tonight. And she said, yes, I just got off the phone with her foster, new foster mom. And I said, well, what are y'all going to do? And she said, we don't know. We do not have placement for her. So one of the DHS workers will spend the night at the DHS office tonight with her. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. So I said, I have a plan. I said, I've known her since she was nine months old, and I just would like to take her home with me. And I think that would be good. And I said, I live in Bryant, and I was giving her all the details. And she said, Miss Dillard, you can't do that. And I said, well, I, I just really think I would like to. And I said, in the morning, maybe y'all will have a better idea of what's going on. She said, Miss Dillard, if you take that child home with you, that is kidnapping. So at this point, she had gotten my attention. And reluctantly, she said, but tomorrow, there will be a meeting with the judge. So I, she said, and if you want to come, you can come. So I went. And um, the caseworker met me. And she said, Miss Dillard, this is a process. You do not just walk up here and get a child and take them home with you. I just hope you understand that. And I looked at her, and with a boldness that could have only come from the Lord, I said, you are exactly right. But I said, I have prayed in the name of the Most High God, and I plan to take this child home with me today. We'll see what he says about it. So we went in. I went before the judge. The judge said, by 5 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, he ordered the caseworker to have her in my home, in our home. This child taught me more lessons about faith than probably anybody else. I learned so much about who God was during the time that she spent in our home. 
one thing that she taught me is she reinforced to me that it does not matter, it does not matter the color of one's skin, but you can love someone deeply. She came to us very frightened, and at night when I would lay down with her, she would take her skinny arms and she would wrap them around my neck, and she'd say, you don't have no cats, do you? I said, no, we don't have cats here. She said, you promise no cat's gonna jump on my bed while I'm sleeping? I said, I promise you, if it does, it's gonna scare me too. So she would, she would just cling to me at night. And one night she said, Mama Kim, I got an idea. I said, what? She said, how about instead of you in here with me in this little bed, let's go in there to your big bed. And I thought about it and I said, well, T, that wouldn't be a good idea because where would poor Steve sleep? If, if I take you in there, he, you know, where would poor Steve sleep? And she said, poor Steve can sleep on the couch. And so that's what he did for a period of time while she was in our home in order to provide security for her um, at, that, at that time. And it was kind of funny because from that time on, I was Mama Kim and he was poor Steve. She would say, is poor Steve coming home for lunch today? Say, yeah. Does poor Steve like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? She'd say, poor Steve, please read me a book. And many of our friends, it's kind of comical, many of our friends kind of came to call him poor Steve because that was just what she had named him. And I learned that her hair was different than our hair. Taking care of her, I learned that there's some differences. I put her in that bathtub and gave her a good bath and washed her hair, sat her up on the counter and I thought, well, she's going to bed, and maybe I'll just blow it dry so she doesn't catch a cold. Ladies in the back, I blew her hair dry. It got big. She looked up in that mirror, and she said, Mama Kim, I don't think this is how we do's our hair. <laughs> so I called a friend. I used my first lifeline and called a friend and worked through that. She also taught me that people long to belong. I had a bracelet and it had three stones on it. Insignificant to me, it was just a bracelet I liked, but I wore it a lot during that time. And she would hold my arm and then look at it, and one day she said, that's Clark, that's Catherine, and that's me. And I said, you're exactly right. She wanted to belong, and she did. Another thing she did is on my sideboard um, at night, we would go to bed and she was facing, always facing that way and she'd often look at those pictures. And you know, I don't know why, but at that time on my sideboard were some pictures and it was of me and my doctor when Clark was born. And there was another picture of me and my doctor when Catherine was born. I mean, I guess, you know, he becomes your hero by the time you've carried a baby nine months and he helps you deliver. But anyway, I had those pictures on my, on my sideboard. And one night she was looking at those and she said, Mama Kim, where is the picture of me and the doctor that took me out of your belly? So she had that longing to belong. She didn't see differences because I didn't see differences with her. And there's another story I would tell you in a lesson learned is that people are watching us during the mundane. I learned that from her. One day she was in my bathroom and she said, Mama Kim, I want to clean your toilet. I said, 
no, baby, you're not going to clean my toilet. She said, well, I want to. So she took that brush and she started cleaning it, and she said, I'm Miss Josie. See, Miss Josie was a custodian at our school. She said, I'm Miss Josie, and she was just cleaning that toilet, and it thundered really loud. And I said, she just startled, and I said, baby, you don't have to be afraid. I said, God takes care of us. That's just thunder. Thunder can't hurt people. She said, Miss Josie is afraid. So, you know, she had watched a custodian who had showed kindness to her. And it made me think, in our faith walk, who do we need to be showing kindness to? That just doing our daily activities, people are watching. This next picture is of the Adams family. Um, I just think they're a beautiful family. Uh, they became some of our very dearest friends during the season of our life when Steve was sick. Catherine had become friends with Mackenzie, the oldest daughter, during kindergarten, and they became fast friends. And as a result, we also uh, were friends. Those of you who are Razorback fans may recognize him. He's Peanut Adams. He was a, a quarterback for the Razorbacks for several years. Um, from this family, I learned that when you go out in public with people of different culture, people are going to stare. They're going to look at you and they're going to try to figure out your story. And it was kind of funny because think about it. You have the Adams family. You had Steve and me and both of my little white children. And then there was Tyriana. So you could just see people thinking, well, that one would go with that one, would go with that one. But you know what? It doesn't matter. What I also learned from them, and one of the main lessons I learned from them, is that there are friends that become like family. And that's who they were to us. Our relationship with them was closer than that of some family. And they were there for us when we needed them. Okay, Jordan. The next slide. is of my kids, and I've already talked to you a little bit about Clark and Catherine. But when I found out that I was expecting, Steve and I had two prayers for our kids. We prayed that they would come to know Jesus and that they would live for him and that they would find a spouse that loved Jesus. And through this picture and through these people, God taught me that he would give us the desires of our heart. God was so gracious and allowed Steve to know both of those before he went to heaven. We were only able to keep Steve at home as he got sicker and as his condition deteriorated because these four kids and other family members stepped in to serve him, to help him, and we learned during this time, all of us together, that our strength daily comes from the Lord. We know what it's like as many of you do when you can't hardly get up in the morning, but you know somebody's praying for you. In Corinthians, it talks about how to be sorrowful and yet rejoicing. And I think that, that is, that's a balance that we as believers have to come to, that there are times of deep, deep sadness. But that doesn't have to be all it is, because there are times of great rejoicing. This next picture is one of our greatest reasons for rejoicing in our family. 
My faith has been built by this small child. He's 13 months old. He was um, adopted. If you'll remember, I mentioned earlier that Steve was adopted. And because of that, Catherine was very impacted by the fact that God placed her daddy with who he placed him with so that he would become the man that he was. And so Catherine, from a very young age, she said, I'm going to do that for some kid. I want to give them a chance. I want to adopt. When she and Trey met, he had had some of the same thoughts. So their idea was that one day they would adopt. Well, about a year and a half ago, God interrupted their plans, and they found out about a little boy that needed a home. They went to the attorney. The attorney said, you need to meet the birth mom. The initial paperwork was done. Y'all, adoption is hard. It's a picture of the gospel, and it's not always pretty. It comes with a lot of suffering. And that child, we hit some major obstacles. But I'm telling you, we had prayer services, and on the third day of his life, God placed him in our family, and he is forever a son and forever a grandson. And that's a picture of what God does for us. There's a song that we sing, and we've sung it some here, and every time we sing these words, I think about it, there's no shadow you won't light up, no mountain you won't climb up coming after me, there's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down coming after me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. God loves us, and he pursues us, just as we were loving and trying to pursue this child, God loves us with a reckless love. And he calls us in our faith walk to love people with that same kind of love and the same kind of abandonment. And he doesn't say if they look like you or if they act like you or if they come from the same kind of background you come from. God demands that we love each other in a reckless abandonment. What I've shared with you this morning is just part of our story. I have just tried to hit the highlights and show you that God has used these people and these circumstances. I've tried to be very real and show you the bright spots and the dark corners. I've showed you places of brokenness and places of healing. And I want you to know that my story is not any different because you all have stories as well. If I was, I could not, I would be amiss if I left here today and did not tell you another group of people that have built my faith. And that is the people of the Bridge Church. I am excited about what God is doing here. I know he's moving. I know he's working. I know he's going to take my story of brokenness and pain, and he's going to take your story of brokenness and pain, and he's going to take all of us together, and we are going to be able to reach people that have not been reached before. We're going to be able to love people with a reckless abandonment. We're going to be able to embrace people that are different than we are. And as the core values of the bridge states, we are going to be able to do Christ-like, love for these people. I'm excited about that. There is not a group of people anywhere that I would rather lock my arms with and go against the forces of evil in Wynn, Arkansas than you people that are sitting right here today. 
I just want to, um, Ben, I want you to know that um, sometimes I know in my life if I've had really heavy burdens. And I know that you've experienced some of that too. And a burden, the picture, the word picture of a burden is not like a little knapsack. But God calls us to bear one another's burdens. It's not a knapsack. It's a boulder. And sometimes when you're carrying, there's no way, there was no way that I could have walked through the 14-year journey if somebody did not come along and say, I know that you've got situations in your home. I know your husband's sick. I know you need this. or There is no way I could have carried that burden by myself. But I had multiple people that came alongside of me and said, here, let me get under here and help you carry your burdens. So that's kind of the word picture. And no doubt there's people here today that have some boulders. They're carrying some heavy burdens. What I'd just like to ask you to do is when we're cleaning up, the leadership team will be here cleaning up for a while. And you don't have to tell anybody any gory details. God knows. But would you just take a minute and find somebody that you could just say, hey, will you pray with me about this this week? That's what we want to do. That's what we need to do because we need each other. Would you pray with me? Father God, our hearts are full today. You have brought us to this place where your love abounds. Oh, Father, I thank you for that. I thank you for the ones who got up early and wrestled kids and got them dressed to be here today, Lord. I pray that their hearts have been encouraged, and I pray that we will all grow in our faith to you. Father, that we, our faith walk was not just about meeting the Savior for the first time, but it's God, who, who today can I encourage? Whose faith walk can I help encourage today? Father, we're not without opportunities. Sometimes we're at without the effort to make those opportunities. Father, we pray that as we go from this place, if someone bumps into us, oh God, let the love of Jesus spill on them. I pray that we will be a different people, full of joy, embracing diversity, loving this community, and winning the loss for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.